Let's do this. Let's go to Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two. We've already talked about the church at Ephesus. We've talked about the church at Smyrna. And now we're talking about the church at Pergamum. So let's read. It says this in verse number 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, I have few things against you. Remember, every week we've been talking about there's four things that he addresses in each letter. There's the commendation, there's the correction, there's the counsel, and there's the promise. Here comes the correction. Nevertheless, I have few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, the Nicolaitans were mentioned in the church of Ephesus in week one. Verse 16 says this, repent. Come on, somebody say repent. Not a necessarily a hugely popular word these days. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You're like, man, this is getting intense. This is getting heavy. It's getting crazy. Verse 17 goes on to say, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the spirit of the Lord says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. A lot of stuff. A lot to dig into. I believe God's going to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray tonight that you would just open up every ear, open up every heart, open up every mind to receive of your word. Change us and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, come on, if you'll believe and receive that with me, why don't you say amen? Amen. So tonight we're continuing our series on the seven churches in Revelation. So, so far we've covered Ephesus which we've titled the loveless church. We talked about Smyrna, who was the persecuted church, and tonight we're going to be looking at Pergamum. And I want to show this map again, because if you missed any of the weeks, I I think some of this is important. And so uh, I'm going to kind of, you'll hear some of these things each week, some of the same stuff, but I, I believe it's important to give context for anybody that wasn't here last week or the week before. This is being written by the Apostle John, who at this point is the only surviving of the last of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And he's been banished to the island of Patmos because they tried to kill him by putting him in boiling oil and he wouldn't die. So he's on the island of Patmos. And while he's on this island, he has this revelation and this encounter with Jesus where he is caught up and sees this vision. And before we get to the vision of all of Revelations, which we're not going to do right now, uh, he writes a letter to seven churches. And these are the seven churches, and they're all located in Asia or modern-day Turkey. And the first letter that he wrote, wrote to was Ephesus. 
And then you can kind of see there was this natural trade route that went up and came down. And so it would follow this trade route from Ephesus, Smyrna, we're on Pergamum. Next week, we'll move through all of these. But it was very systematic in the way that it was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I got to be honest, I'm loving this series. And the reason I'm loving this series is because as a church planter, uh, I'm having to go and I'm having to really dive into and dig into church history. And you've got to understand that these churches here were some of the very first church plants, that these were some of the very first churches that as Jesus called his disciples together and said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, that these were some of the very first churches that were planted. And then Jesus comes probably, you know, 60 years, 70 years after he's called up into heaven and he writes letters to these churches. He writes letters personally to each of these churches. I love it because I'm digging into and finding out more about the very first church plants. So here's what you need to know. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching if that's all right. And then I'll do a little bit of preaching if that's all right. So what you need to know about Pergamum is this. Stick with me. I'm going to build a little groundwork for you. Pergamum is a city that was known for sins. Think of this. When you, when you think of Pergamum, think of Sin City. Think of Vegas. Uh, this was a city that was home to five major temples. People would travel from all over the world to come and worship at these altars and at these temples. It was home to the largest altar in ancient history, and it was dedicated to Zeus. I think we've got a picture of, of this temple. They've actually moved it to Berlin. Show me the one that's like, it looks like it's in uh, like very nice. And these are some of the ruins. These are some of the ruins here that you can see. You can see all the temples. This is one of the most well-preserved cities, but I want you to see this last one here. It's that, that was what it would have looked like. This picture here, this is the altar that they said was the altar of Zeus. And you can see just the size of it. And you can see how well it's been preserved. They took this in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they moved it to Berlin where it's now preserved. But it was home and it was the largest temple of that time dedicated to Zeus. The Trajan temple dedicated to emperor worship was there. The sanctuary of Asclepius, the god of healing, was there. The temple of Dionysus, the god of wine, revelry, and sanity, and religious ecstasy was there. It was one of the most well-preserved of the seven cities. Pergamum was the capital of Asia. I heard one commentator say that if you rule the capital city, you rule the land. So when Jesus said that you live where Satan has his throne, it was a picture of sin and debauchery that was prevalent in the city of Pergamum. So now you know a little bit about the city. So this is what Jesus says to the church of Pergamum. He says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. See, Jesus, he starts with this commendation. He starts with this encouragement. And Jesus speaks and he encourages him that you haven't given in to sin. He speaks to this 
select group of the church that he says, you haven't given in, even though you, you live where Satan has his throne, even though you live in this vile place, you haven't given in to sin, even though they live in the shadow of sin, they haven't given in. And he encourages them that even though they live in such a vile city, dedicated to paganism and sin, that they have not succumbed to idol worship and sinfulness. It reminds me of the words that Jesus would pray over his disciples in John 17. He said this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Listen to this. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Can I tell you tonight, church, that even though that we are in this world, we are not of this world. And if I could label or title this message tonight, I would title it this, The Compromising Church. And what we have to be careful of is that we don't get to a place where we are the compromising church. Because Jesus comes and he commends a few of them and he says, I want to commend you on this, that even though that you live in this sinful city, you are in Pergamum, but you are not of Pergamum. And I think that God would even say to us tonight that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And there's been so much of a, a blurring of the lines of where the world is and where the church is and what's accepted in the church or, or what's not accepted in the church. And there's been these lines that have been blurred on standards of holiness and standards of purity and standards of truth. But tonight I would say that we have to refuse to compromise the truth. Because this is where we must live as a, as a church. We have to be the church that is unwilling to compromise. If you're taking notes, write this down. My four, first point is this. Refuse to compromise the truth. The truth. Because Pergamum was home to the second largest library of its time. The library had more than 200,000 volumes. Knowledge was valuable, but truth was being squelched. And can I tell you, we're living in a time where knowledge is king and knowledge is, is valuable, but a lot of times it can come at a cost. It can come at a price that we compromise the truth of God's word. Pergamum was a city that was proud of being the epicenter of knowledge and learning. It was the home of medicine and medical knowledge. The temple of Asclepius was there, who was the god of healing and was signified by the snake. There's nothing wrong with knowledge until it encroaches upon the truth. Can I say it again? There's nothing wrong with knowledge until it encroaches upon the truth. You know it, the truth is under attack these days. Everyone is all about, you know this word, my truth. Everybody's all about my truth and, and what's true to me. And you can have your truth and I can have my truth. And relativism has taken over the world and you can be what you want to be and I can be what I want to be. And no one can tell me any different because if it's true to me, it's true to me. And truth is being sacrificed on the altar of compromise. We're living in a world where truth has been compromised. Listen to how Jesus said it in John 14, 6. He said, Jesus answered, I am, come on, somebody say the way, the truth, and the life. 
He said, no one comes to the Father except by me. And we're living in a world that says, no, 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 everything's all good. Everything's fine. You can live however you want. You can do whatever you want and everything's going to be fine. There's multiple ways to God. But what my Bible says is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the light. No one gets to, to the Father except through me. We're living in a world where we have to refuse to compromise the truth. He goes on to commend him. He said, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas, a follower, and many believe that this would have been the pastor of the church of Pergamum, was willing to follow Christ even to death. So who was Antipas? Antipas is believed, as I just said, to be the pastor of the church at Pergamum. He was a physician prior to his conversion. The thing to know about physicians of the day is that they dealt in mysticism and pagan worship. Today's modern sign for uh, medicine actually came out of the city of Pergamum. You've probably seen it. It's the staff with the, with the snakes going around it. The two serpents wrapped around, the sta- wrapped, wrapped around the staff. They would take people who were suffering and they would put them into a trance-like stake, and they would let snakes crawl all over them. Now, I just got to say that if I were sick in the ancient world, and you told me that the cure to my sickness is to fall asleep at night and let snakes crawl on top of me, just got to be honest, I'm probably going to die. Because you're you're not going to put me in a trance. You're not going to have snakes crawling all over the top of me. But this was a a common practice in those days in the temple of uh, Asclepius. It, It was believed that Antipas began to pray. And that when he gave his life to Christ, he refused to then compromise and participate in the temple worship. That when there was this signifying of a change in his life, he said, you know what? I can no longer practice medicine in that way, but what I can do is I can follow the examples of disciples and apostles, and I can lay hands on the sick, and I can see them healed. And so what tradition tells us is that Antipas began to pray for people and that people began to get healed and that he began to cast demons out of people. And because he was effective as a Christian, that all of the other uh, sorcerers and those that practiced medicine got mad at Antipas because he wasn't willing to compromise what he now knew as the truth. And so they took Antipas and they placed him in a bronze bull and they would it had this door in the bottom and they put him in this bronze bull and they lit a fire under this bull and they literally roasted Antipas to death he was a sacrifice but Antipas said you know what I have discovered the truth I have discovered what is real I have discovered somebody named Jesus that came into my heart that came into my life that changed me from the inside out and now that I know the truth there is no way I can compromise the truth because even in the face of mounting pressure he was unwilling to compromise the truth to depart from what he knew was true 
It is believed that the way that he died was being placed in that bronze bowl, lit a fire underneath. Man, I could imagine him even wanting to just (laughs) recount at that point. There's a door that he can escape out of. I'm sure at any moment he was going, I've got to get out of here. But he stayed true even to the point of death. Why? Because he said there is no compromising God's truth. So that was the commendation. Let's let's get uh, the correction. So Jesus says, look, you're you're doing good in this. This is is the thing that you've done good. But watch what he says. He says, nevertheless, here's the correction. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Here's the thing. You may open this Bible And one day, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you do your devotion. Maybe you just one day just like throw it open. You're like, I'm going to read that, you know. Uh, And so one day you just drop your Bible on the table and it opens up to Revelations 2. And you start reading this and you're like, Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitans, Antipas. And so you start reading this, and, and it's really easy just to read the Bible and just kind of like check your, your thing on your daily list. Like, oh, yeah, I, I read the Bible. I have no clue what I read today I, because this is. But when you begin to look at the deeper meaning, when you begin to look at the deeper truth behind each scripture, and when the Bible says that they went in the way of Balaam, when the Bible talks about a man named Antipas, to go back and study church history and to look in books of martyrs, and, and, and it, the Bible then begins to come to life. And he says this, he said, I have a few things against you that some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam. What is the teaching of Balaam? I'm glad you asked. If you're taking notes, I would say this. Refuse to compromise integrity. Refuse to compromise integrity. We refuse to compromise the truth, but we refuse to compromise integrity. Because, see, Jesus reprimands the church here of Pergamum for compromising and following the teaching of Balaam. Listen, he, Balaam's also mentioned many times in the Bible, but two references in the New, Te- in the New Testament. Jude 1.11 says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, and they have, watch, rushed for profit into Balaam's error. What did they do? They rushed for what? Profit into Balaam's error. Second Peter said this about Balaam. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the what? The wages of wickedness. So who is Balaam? Balaam was a prophet for hire in the Old Testament. He was not a man of, of God, but he was tapped into the spiritual world for personal gain. So let me set the scene for you. Children of Israel have been brought out of the land. They've done their wandering, and they're about to go into the promised land. And they've already conquered a couple of cities. And so there's this massive horde of people that is barreling towards the promised land, kind of consuming every city that they encounter. So there's a king by the name of Balak and Balak takes notice. He said, well, they destroyed this city and they've done this to that city. And so I've got to do something about this. So Balak calls on Balaam 
And he sends men to Balaam and he says, Balaam, I need you to come and I need you to put a curse on the nation of Israel because maybe if you curse the nation of Israel, then they won't be able to overtake us, the Moabites. And so Balaam uh, agrees to go and so he saddles up his donkey and he's on his way to see Balak. How many of y'all know this story? Anybody ever heard this story before? And Balaam's on his donkey and the donkey begins to swerve off the road. And he's like, what's going on? So he pulls him back onto the road. And a second time, the donkey swerves off the road. Balaam's like, what? And this is like my trusted donkey. What in the world are you doing? Third time, he swerves off the road. Finally, Balaam has had it. He loses his temper. He gets off the donkey and he begins to beat the donkey. Don't do this. Don't lose your temper, all right? He begins to beat the donkey. And as he's beating the donkey, the donkey literally turns to him and begins to talk. Y'all are like, this Bible is a crazy book. Tell me about it. I know. This donkey turns and, and he begins to talk to Balaam. And he said, why are you beating me like this? And the craziest part is not that the donkey talked, but that Balaam began to talk back to the donkey. And he said, because you've swerved off the road these three times. And the donkey said, do you not see a messenger of the Lord? And then God opened his, his eyes and he sees in front of him a messenger of the Lord that had been trying to stop him all the way. So the messenger permits him to go. And so Balaam goes, he meets Balak, this king, and he stands in front of this nation. Balak says, I want you to speak a curse over. He said, okay, let me go talk to God and I'll come back. So Balaam goes and he speaks with God and God gives him something to say. And when he comes back, all he can speak and say over the nation of Israel is a blessing. <laughs> the king is pretty mad. I'm sure you can imagine. So he goes back again and he talks to God and they go to a different place and, and he's like, okay, maybe this time I can do it. And when he goes to speak, what does he speak? He speaks blessing. And he goes back a third time and the third time he comes back and guess what he does? He speaks a blessing. And all he could do was speak a blessing. And so when that didn't work, Balaam said, okay, well, how can we get the people of Israel? What if we entice them away into sin? What if we lure them away with sexual immorality? What if we lure them away with idol worship? What if we lure them away with the things of the world that will be pleasing and satisfying to them? And I believe that this signifies that we cannot compromise in the area of integrity. Because I believe that there's things that we'll want to do because it seems right, it feels right, and we can lower our standard and we can lower our integrity to do the things that we want to do. It said that Balaam was a prophet for hire. In other words, he was like, you can pay me and I'll prophesy something over the children of Israel. A lot of times we'll chase money, we'll chase the things of the world rather than chasing the things of God. It can be easy in this world to give up our integrity in the name of personal gain. The pressure is all around us to compromise the truth, to compromise what we believe in, to give up on what we know is right in the name of success or personal gain. Because he's, here's the thing, Balaam knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And this is what I love about God is that he had multiple roadblocks set up in front of him to keep him from doing what he ultimately did, which led them astray into sexual immorality. 
The donkey turned off the road once. He had an opportunity at that time to turn around. The donkey turns off the road again. He had the opportunity. He's like, something's not, something is up. Something. Have you ever had that moment in your heart and your spirit where you're like, something is up. Something is not right. And God's giving you the opportunity to turn and run the other way. And then a third time, and an angel of the Lord stands there in front of him. He has the opportunity to run the other way. Three times he goes to God and says, let me curse him. And God only allows him to speak blessing. So he had six hurdles that he had to step over and cross to go, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be a prophet for hire. This is the, the road that I want to follow. These are the things that I want to do. And so it was roadblock and hurdle after hurdle to say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I wonder how many times in our life we'll step over roadblocks and hurdles and the nudging of the Holy Spirit that's saying, don't go there. Don't do that. That's not the right business deal. That's not the right business partner. That's not whatever it is in your life. And we just step right over thing after thing. We go, no, God, it's all about what I want. And we've got to come to a place to where we are unwilling to compromise our integrity. The second correction that he gave the city of Pergamum is he said, likewise, you also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans are, are believed to be disciples of Nicholas of Antioch. Watch this in Acts 6. I just want you to see each of these people. I want you to see that I'm not just making something up, all right? Acts 6, 5 says, this proposal pleased the whole group. Who The whole group is uh, would be uh, the disciples, the apostles, the ones that walked with Jesus. They, the Bible talks here in this passage of Scripture about how they were overwhelmed and so busy that they had to they had to get more people and recruit more people to do the work of ministry so they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the holy spirit also Philip Procurus Nicanor Timon Parmenas I guess and Nicholas from Antioch a convert a, con- a convert to Judaism Nicholas of Antioch a convert to Judaism Now, I think it's interesting that it goes through and it lists everybody else's name, but what does it let you know about Nicholas? That he was a convert to Judaism. What does this mean? That he wasn't a natural-born Jew. That he had, at some point, converted from paganism over into Judaism. That there was a time that he was in the world, worshiping the things of the world. God got a hold of his heart. He converts, he converts to Judaism. And then when Jesus shows up, he's like, no, this is good. Now I'm converting to Christianity. So you see this background of paganism, Judaism, and Christianity. And what is believed is that Nicholas began to take things from paganism He began to take things from Judaism and he began to take things from Christianity and mix them into this thing that he thought was the right way. And so the Bible speaks two different times in Revelations about how Jesus despises the ways of the Nicolaitans. Not that he hates the Nicolaitans, but he hates their actions and he hates their deeds and and he doesn't like what they stand for. And what this is, is it is a doctrine that came from somebody that was compromising the truth. Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise, implying that total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. Did you hear me? He was 
blurring the lines between the church and the world. But Paul would write this to the church of Corinth. He would say, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. How does it get any more plain than that? But they were buying into a doctrine that said, I can be in the world and in the church, in the world and in Christ and everything's all right. And God was saying, no, this is simply not true. You need to come apart and you need to be separate. Come on, somebody say amen. Jesus wanted the church in Pergamum to be in Pergamum, but not of Pergamum. The only way that we're truly going to make a difference in this world is if we're not of it. Because if we look just like the world, then we stand no chance of making a difference. The Nicolaitans had no chance of making an impact because they look, acted, talked, and participated in all of the things of the world. Watch what Paul wrote to Timothy, his mentor. He said, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Watch this, having a form of godliness but denying its power. If I could say anything to Restoration Church, a church that is less than a year old, we, have to, we can never become a church that has a form of godliness and doesn't have its power. We can't be a church that look like we have it all together, but really on the back end, man, we, we, we're dying. We've got to be a church that goes, I'm not willing to compromise the truth. I'm not willing to compromise this word. I'm not willing to compromise my integrity. Integrity means this, that I'm going to serve God whether you're around or not. You may not know my thoughts, but they're going to be dedicated and sold out and consecrated for God. That's what integrity looks like, and we have to be a church that will not compromise integrity because we can't just have a form of godliness and deny its power. We can't be good at just getting up on stage and worshiping, but our life is living like hell. We can't just be people that are lay hands on people and pray for people, but in the background, we live like the devil himself. We can't be people that stand and, and hold a sign and smile and welcome everybody knowing on the inside that we are dying. We can't have just a form of godliness and deny its power. A compromising church is a powerless church. A compromising church is a powerless church. It's powerless. Why? Because it's diluted. If you ever had any household cleaner and maybe you were like down to the end of the bottle and you didn't feel like going to the store. And so, you know, you just, I was like, I'll just put a little water in there. You put a little, what did you just do to that cleaning solution? You diluted it. You watered it down. And I think there's a lot of us that, you know, when we get low on the Holy Spirit, when we hadn't been in here, when we hadn't been in this building, when we hadn't been in prayer, we go, oh, I'll fill myself up with something else. Guess what we're doing? We're diluting that. So we might have a form of godliness, but we're denying the full power of the Holy Spirit that honestly we need to live each and every day. So this is the correction that he gives to 
the church. Now, here's the counsel. The thing I love is that in every book, he goes, okay, hey, you did this good. Could have done this better. Here's how you fix it. And if you fix it, this is the promise. This is the blessing that is coming. Can you see how good that God is that in all of this, that even though he does correct, that he provides a way to make it right and then goes, hey, once you get that right, I just want to know, I want to let you know what the eternal reward is going to be. So this is his counsel to the church at Pergamum. Repent. Ah, there's that word, right? Repent, therefore. Change your mind. We talked about this week one in the church to Ephesus. Change your mind. Change your mind about the way you're thinking. Change the mind of your mind about the habits you're involved in. Change your mind maybe about your business practices. Maybe you're lowering your standards of integrity to, to get a little more money. And so you, you've, you've lowered your, change your mind. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you or if we'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? What is, what is the word? The Bible says it's what? It's a double-edged sword. To me, it's so interesting that here he says, I'm going to come and I'll war with the truth. I'll war with the truth. How are lies defeated? With the truth. And there's coming a day where there's going to be a lot of people that are surprised when Jesus returns and they go, oh my gosh, that's, it was the truth. What all those crazy Christians were saying is the truth. That dude in the cubicle next to me that kept inviting me to church, he was crazy. But it was the truth. And the Bible says that when he comes back, it's going to be with the sword of my mouth, which is the truth. And there's going to be people that are standing going, how could I have been so dumb? How could I have stepped over roadblock after roadblock and did what I wanted to do? Now the truth is standing here in front of me, and I regret all of this. However, he says, repent, because we've got the opportunity now to change our mind. We may not have it tomorrow. And you've heard preachers preach this for years. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Jesus is coming back. I don't know. No man knows the day, nor the hour, nor the time. It feels closer than ever. We don't know. But today, guess what? We have the opportunity to repent. Guess what? Today, we have the opportunity to change our mind. Guess what? Today, we have the opportunity to walk out of these doors different. Guess what? Today, we have the opportunity to let grace visit our life and change us. Because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. So the promise is this. The promise is eternal life. I'm going to ask that the band comes back. At the end of every letter, so commendation, correction, counsel, and the promise. And I would, say, I would say this about the promise. Go back and read each letter. I would say this, the promise in each of these letters is eternal. It's not like a, a now promise. It is a eternal promise. Because when you go and you, you read the last, you read the last uh, little portion of this, you know, it begins to, to unfold this promise that we'll have manna that 
this hidden manna that we know nothing about. You're like, what in the world is that? And it says that we're going to be given a white stone with our name on it. And maybe some of you have been waiting up at night with like waiting God just to drop a white stone. I don't know. Maybe you went into uh, the woods and you were like, God, give me my name and I'll write it on a stone. You know what? This is an eternal promise. It's an eternal promise that, and what it's saying is that God, we're going to a place where God is our strength. We're going to a place where we're not going to have to worry about fighting against this flesh that's on the inside of us that pulls us to do the wrong thing. And we're fighting against this flesh. It says, no, you're going to a place where Jesus is your power. He is your strength and everything will be okay. You're going to a place where you will be made new. You'll be a new creation. So when it says he's going to give you a stone with your name on it, maybe that will actually happen. But what I can tell you is this, is that it signifies me going from an old way of life into a new way of life, and I'm going to be changed forever. There's an eternal promise. I want you to stand on your feet with me. Last point is this. Refuse to compromise humility. Refuse to compromise humility. Jesus said that Pergamum was the throne of Satan. He was one that was signified by pride. Satan was thrown out of heaven because, listen, this is what it was said about Satan. Isaiah 14. This is what Satan said. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars or the messengers of God. Satan said, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Verse 15 said, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. James 4, 6 said, said it this way. God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. If we'll refuse to compromise humility, we'll avoid the fate of Satan and judgment because humility keeps us on our face. Humility keeps us seeking God and longing for his presence. Humility keeps us from compromising our integrity because we'll listen to God's promptings and not blow past his warnings thinking we know best. Humility will keep us from compromising truth because we'll listen to his word rather than our own reasoning and the reasoning of the world. Humility will keep us coming back to Christ as our source and our strength in a fallen world. Humility will, like for Antipas, make us willing to lay down our life for the will of Christ. 